Hello, I'm Marcus Morquet, and you're listening to the Churchill Fellowship Interviews, a series of recordings from my 2018 adventure traveling across the USA researching makerspaces and digital technology in schools. Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that we tried five years ago was to think about what was the next right step for us as a school. And we had a small group, five of us, who were really excited and really eager to think about how we might transform two existing spaces because they just weren't meeting our needs. Um, And when we visited other schools, when we talked to people who had designed similar spaces, the line that really resonated with us was, go where the love is, right? Figure out the people who are interested, the people who are eager, and figure out how to bring more people in. Uh, But you weren't going to start off with everyone on board, right? That just wasn't realistic, and it also didn't need to happen in order for the space to take off. And so I think what we found was that there were a lot of teachers who were eager in rethinking projects um, that had been tried and true, but were generally the projects were looking the same from kid to kid and from year to year. And teachers were eager to think about how to get more, Mm. um, but not sure what that meant or looked like. So when we designed the spaces, Makery up for kindergarten through fourth grade and Makery down for fifth through eighth grade, we tried to think about spaces that were developmentally appropriate that had tools and supplies and resources that matched the kids in those grades mm. that would inspire them to show their ideas in new ways. And so I think about what the makery looked like looked like in the first year yeah. versus today. And I think the thing that's made it work was that we designed spaces that were able to evolve, right? So we've had, you know, we had one member of the team who uh, helped fi- uh, create the makery retire. And, right, and how did we bring a new person on to both build on, but take it into a new direction as well. Mm-hmm. I think the makery has given kids an opportunity to be more curious, to be okay. more creative. Yeah. And it's not that it it's new, right? That I think that it's um, the creativity that has, is in all of our students all the time, but gave our students a new outlet. And because they were creating these wonderful physical projects, it became very visible. We were able to see the thinking. We were able to hear the explanations of you know, why a prototype didn't work and what the next step might be. Mm. So I think that that approach to challenges and the resiliency has been something that's uh, come from the makery. Yeah, definitely. The experience the kids have in the, in the makery, how does that actually, could that be translated into other areas of the curriculum, so the maths, you know, the language as well too? Is it, how's it worked at this school? Have you actually managed to sort of parlay it across the school? Yeah, and uh, I think we have two models, right? In kindergarten through fourth grade, it's set up as a specialist model. So the students are coming from their class to the makery. So those projects tend to be a little bit more self-contained, and that's been driven a little bit by instructional needs in the classroom, but also around schedule. In the upper school, Makery Down, we had a little bit more flexibility, and so we created a collaborative model. And so that's, the students aren't scheduled at all into those spaces, but instead, teachers work with Susan, the Makery facilitator, to plan projects. And so I think that's a place where we've seen projects that are really integrated into content area and driven by the needs of what's going on in in Mandarin or in social studies Spanish. or in math, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and how do we, and how do we figure out more of that? And we started to do some thinking about like how do we think about the schedule more creatively in the lower school? How do we bridge the gap between makery down and makery up? Um, those aren't easy answers, but we're mm. we're trying to figure out how to do that. 
our students have been learning about you know Egyptian history for I don't know probably 30 40 years here at Berks to my knowledge and Two years ago, um, we had a new teacher come to Berks who was eager to incorporate more technology into her classroom. We looked at the goals of the unit, and we were, had already planned a field trip to go to the Rosicrucian Museum, which is the, one of the largest Egyptian museums in the country, uh, down in San Jose. And we decided to make an Egyptian museum here at Berks that we could invite all of the students and teachers to come and view, but it wouldn't be static, it would be interactive. So we incorporated the Hummingbird Robotics Kits into displays that the students made that would allow the viewer to go up and put their hand over a sensor and then they would hear about or hear an answer to a particular question about Egyptian history that the teacher posed to each of the 12 groups of students. So every project had a different focus, like what role did women play in ancient Egypt? Um, what, uh, how did Egyptians communicate to one another? And so the projects answered that question and instead of going up to a project and reading a paragraph or two about it, kindergartners now who can't read could go up and, and interact with it. One of the things that I love about the project is oftentimes, you know, when you have a classroom, you have so many different kinds of kids and teachers are always worried about differentiating for different levels and different kids and different learning styles. This hands-on approach, I find the students that often incur, in, encounter uh, obstacles in the classroom to their full participation. Maybe they're shy. Maybe they're not great at memorizing facts. These are the students that, with this project-based learning model, they thrive, they excel. And quite frankly, as a teacher, the fact that they have an audience larger than just me, it creates a little bit of, of that use stress that you want in kids. They really, really want to do a good job. These are adolescent kids. They want to please their teacher, yes, but they also, there's some you know, uh, uh, some competition, if you will. I don't know what the right word is, but there's a higher, the stakes are a little higher and we get more quality, I realized, in the, in the product because they know they have this, the whole community is going to take a look. Susan, I'm loving it. Terrific stuff. I imagine the passion that you're expressing here is uh, matched by the kids because clearly they can actually take things and run with things and develop things. It doesn't sound like uh, there's, there's obviously there's general instruction about we're going to be doing this stuff, but obviously the kids can take it in the direction they wish to. Yeah, I think it also helps um, move away from the right-wrong thinking model, particularly yeah. in an all-girls environment. Um, I find that Kids having multiple paths um, for success is so important, and they feel a level of uh, agency and autonomy and individuality that is very different when they're all trying to pass the same exam. Mm. Um, there's, there's just I just feel like kids have more of an opportunity to express what they know to their teacher in ways that they couldn't before, and teachers can therefore appreciate and acknowledge different kinds of thought processes, students can also work just head on on their ability to respond from, with, you know, from, from the setback, um, be tenacious, increase their resiliency, all those things that teachers, you know, the hidden curriculum in a classroom, like yeah. you want your kids to mm. be good people. Yeah. This kind of work, they have to share. Mm. They have to take turns. They have to be patient. They have to acknowledge each other. We also give them protocols for giving comments in each other's work. So oftentimes mm. we develop prototypes first before we do the real project. Yeah. And the students get feedback not just from the teacher but from, from one another. So they have to learn how to do that respectfully, how to be empathetic 
if someone said this to you, how would it make you feel? And there's mistakes and bumps along the way, and, and it's all a part of the learning process, but it's richer and it's more meaningful. Susan and I co-taught a makery elective, uh, well, for the past two years, um, but the first project we did was, uh, we like to call it the piano stairwell. Um, where, and that's literally what we, we said is we want to make a piano and it should be triggered as you walk up and down the stairs. So the, the girls figured out how that, what kind of sensors they wanted to use. We ended up using ultrasonic sensors as opposed to switches or any other. We explored three or four different technologies. Um, we figured out how to wire it all together. Um, they figured out how to build the sensors and, and uh, put it all together. And, and it was just a, it was an amazing process. During that, when we were, we were actually building the sensors, and uh, so the groups had they, they had built their designed their own three dimensional models, and um, they needed to decide which one they could use because we really needed to have one that we were going to use for the for the project. And they they had an amazing debate, um, looking into uh, how quickly they could be built, how easily they would be to service, um, what they looked like. Um, I was, I was just blown away. And this was a, a completely self-led conversation that they had. And they um, elected, you know, they, they chose which one they thought was the best design to use. Now, Susan, you've seen some amazing projects over the last few years in your classroom. What's the most, the most brilliant one you've seen that has sort of like taken your eye? You thought, my gosh, this is a moment. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is we had a group of fifth graders this year who were doing um, the process of mummification. It was actually during this Egyptian unit that I was talking to you about. And they saw it as um, different phases, and they wanted the observer to experience what it was like to actually if, you know, pass away and then be mummified, if they could still be conscious, and what were the different, both the, the literal processes that were going on, as well as kind of the metaphorical things that were going on to please the gods to get you into the afterlife. So they created a, um, a display that had a motor underneath, and it would turn and go through the different phases of the afterlife the observer would come up and wave their hand over something, and then you would hear about the mummification process first. Then you would hear about the weighing of the heart, and they made a little scale, and you had to put a heart inside the scale that had a motion sensor at the bottom. It was completely interactive, and then the most fascinating thing for me in terms of engineering Gosh. was the whole project would reset itself for yeah. the next observer. Yeah, yeah. So it would spin 360 degrees, and with everything was tethered. It's not wireless. They do have a wireless hmm. um, piece now that I'm very eager to look into, but the fact that they had to think about all of that in addition to getting their facts straight and making sure everything was spelled correctly on the display was, I just thought it was brilliant. That is brilliant. Do they program that to obviously? Using Scratch, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, using a motor underneath. And then they had to make sure that their entire project was completely mm. level. Mm. No room could weigh more than any other room or else it was all off kilter. Yeah. So they created all kinds of engineering solutions to mm. make sure that it mm. still functioned well. Now, you mentioned a bit earlier there was your, your school's involved in a national competition, I mm -hmm. think, to do with, what's it called? It's called Explorer Vision. That's it, yeah. by Toshiba. And you spoke about a particular project which one of the, or a couple of the kids were working on in, in a particular area of the school. Could you perhaps tell us that story again? So we used the design thinking process and um, protocols from Project Zero, um, which are amazing, parts, purposes, and complexities. We have kids take everyday objects and, and break them open and see what they're made of and what they do, and they have to surmise what things 
What's the purpose of parts? So then we do the same thing with problems. We come up with lists of problems of today. And the competition is basically asking kids to develop a piece of technology that does not exist today, but could they could imagine existing 20 years from now to solve that problem. So um, one of the things that really affects us here in the Bay Area are, are earthquakes. So uh, the group, a group of kids researched all kinds of molecular technology and what keeps atoms together from both, you know, from a physics perspective as well as from a chemical perspective. And they created this, this housing material called atomic rebuild. And the atoms would have radioactive tags that, in other words, once, once an atom was no longer bound to another atom, which would, in this case would be due to a natural disaster, the atoms would over time eventually find one another again. So your house would basically rebuild itself after a natural disaster. Um, we've had students uh, work on problems with you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, cancers, uh, ADHD. One of my favorites was um, a deterrent for drunk driving. Students created a sleeve for your steering wheel that was made of a material that could measure your blood alcohol content via your perspiration. And if you were over the legal limit, it would, your car would not start. And I just thought that was... That is I could imagine that actually yeah. becoming... Well, Although hopefully thing. with automated cars, we won't have to worry ah, about that anymore. But. Yeah. I read somewhere where someone was suggesting that uh, maker education has got the potential to revolutionise education, yeah. take it to another area which people haven't even considered. Yeah. Is that like something you think does have the potential to revolutionise education? I do, right? And so I, I think back to my my education, right, when I was in middle school. Yeah. And the story I like to tell is of a birdhouse project where we were working in a shop and we were sanding and hammering and sawing and drilling. And then a couple years after I graduated, they scrapped the shop classroom oh, and what? turned it into a tech lab. Okay. And so here I am at my own school all this time later turning the tech lab into a place that looks like my shop class. Yeah, yeah. And so kind of the question that we get from lots of folks who visit is, is, is this really anything different? Is this something new? And I think it's asking kids to think about bringing their ideas to reality in a new way, right? It's that the, you know, all of our birdhouses look the same, and here we're hopeful that many of the things don't look like birdhouses at all, right? If we're really creating spaces where kids can be creative um, in their work. And so I, I do, I think it's something that's quite new, quite unique. I think it's uh, not just a evolution from the shop class, but a revolution in how we think about engaging students and preparing them for the future ahead. Thank you for listening to the Churchill Fellowship Interviews. You can find the complete series at radiocarum.org.